You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jim Kassang and I, Niels Kassel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Mark last week, where we naturally discussed the fallout on CTAs from the Silicon Valley Bank uh, issue and a few other bank emergencies we also discussed how we are in a period of, as Mark calls it, the great bond repricing and what that means for the economy more broadly, a topic that I'm sure we'll revert to later on today. Also, I very much would encourage you to uh, listen to our midweek episode, which was highly interesting. It's a conversation for those who want to hear an alternative view uh, in terms of the world's largest country. McKinsey said that we ha- are living in the Indian century, Morgan Stanley believes that 20% of global growth in the next decade will come from India. But our guest, Princeton economist uh, Ashoka Modi, has a different view, which he details in his new book called India is Broken. And this turned into a fascinating conversation with Kevin uh, on the podcast. So head over and check that out after you've been listening to Jim and I today. Jim, it is wonderful to be back with you uh, this week. How are things where you are? Doing good. I'm actually at the Grand Canyon with my kids, uh, believe it or not, uh, looking out over the canyon. So hopefully uh, inspiration today. Uh, no, it's been a while. It's, it's wonderful uh, to be back on. Fantastic. Good stuff. Now, um, even though it's been a few weeks since we last spoke, within the last couple of weeks, I would say it has been quite eventful. We've had uh, a few bank failures. Uh, we've had central banks continuing to hike. The last one came yesterday where the Swiss National Bank went to 1.5%. Bank of England now is up to 4.25%. ECB 3.5% and the Fed, of course, somewhere between 4, 3 quarters and 5%. Now, we are recording on a Friday. So, of course, we don't know if there's going to be more bank rescues over the weekend. But I would love perhaps maybe to start off to hear your reaction to some of these things that's taken place in terms of what's gone wrong for some of these institutions, how the authorities have reacted to avoid perhaps even bigger crises, uh, at least for now. But maybe also, um, you know, the speed of how these collapses are happening and, and, and maybe even how, I mean, you're a big social media, you've got a massive following, how social media may be playing a role in, in how quickly these happens. And I'm fully aware I just gave you four questions in one, so I will remind you if you forget uh, some of it. But uh, I'm just curious to get your take on on current events, if we put it like that. Yeah, um, I think it's uh, it's been a particularly uh, interesting moment. Uh, no, this rhymes with a lot of other times uh, we've seen in the past, but it's different, as you mentioned, because uh, we live in a different time. Um, this was always the the point we were heading to when interest rates started ratcheting higher. Um, By definition, increasing interest rates and doing QT means you're taking liquidity out of the system. Um, And uh, and when you do it at a historic rate, which the Fed has, um, eventually, eventually, something is going to break somewhere. Um, 
somebody, uh, Michael Cow actually uh, mentioned just a couple days ago. I thought it was a good analogy. It's like playing Jenga and there's a piece at the bottom you're trying to get out. And, uh, you know, the Fed's been jiggling. That, that Fed funds rate is, is that little piece at the bottom. Um, you know, it's, uh, there's lots of examples of, and I've talked about leptocurting markets, why we live in this much more dangerous kind of world. And it doesn't mean things are going to be volatile all the time. It doesn't mean things break all, all, all at once, right? It does mean that, that uh, there's much more fragility in the system. Um, and it's kind of like a sand mound where we've been removing kind of sand. And at some point, uh, you have that kind of Minsky moment and things kind of break all, you know, and can be, can be pretty ugly. Now, so that's kind of the world we live in. So this isn't a surprise, I would say. Um, if anything, it's been very controlled, uh, very kind of the, the Fed's been ready and waiting for it. Uh, they acted quickly. Uh, we've prepared also, uh, you know, over a decade, uh, two decades, right, for, for another banking uh, run um, to some extent. Um, there's, it's still an imperfect system and there's still flaws and it doesn't mean things can't get out of control. Um, almost by definition, banks are leveraged entities with a massive tail. So, but I've argued this, and, and I'll stop here. We can kind of dive in to other topics. But I, um, I've mentioned this in other places that 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 ultimately the Fed kind of wanted the air out of this market a bit, um, and they got that uh, to some extent, um, at least briefly. Unfortunately, um, you know, and they've managed the tail as well. I mean, their job is to try and control this volatility to manage this. And they've been writing, you know, calls in a sense, right? And now they're trying to manage the tail. So we'll get into that, I'm sure, later. But it's been a been an interesting moment. I think uh, there's been a lot of extreme moves in market that I think are overreactions um, and that are going to lead to extreme reactions back. But we'll, we'll take it from there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, and we will for sure go back uh, and discuss some of this in more detail. There's a couple of more things I wanted to um, to uh, talk to you about here in the in the beginning of our episode. Um, I saw this description. I, I, I should have written down which publication was. I mean, it could have been from Bloomberg, could have been from one of the other digital platforms. But but um, I, it basically said, you know, history remembers the Federal Reserve Chair's Paul Volcker as the slayer of inflation and Ben Bernanke as the crisis firefighter. But it seems like Jerome Powell is in danger of having to play both roles at once or what may be worse to choose between them. Well, in, in your opinion, because I know it touches a lot of the things that you've been talking about for a while. I mean, which one do you think he should? focus on uh if he had to choose yeah the fed is um in an impossible situation they uh, have a mandate to control inflation when they don't have all they have is a cyclical tool uh that actually ironically works across the grain the opposite way for secular trends we've talked about this here on the show but uh you know they're they're trying to control cyclically in uh, the economy um with against a secular inflationary problem. And um, Volcker succeeded by being very, very, uh, you know, forceful uh, with, the, you know, in, in his response, but it worked because we were already at the end of that secular trend, not because he was the only person to try that approach because the two Fed chairs before him tried uh, almost as hard, uh, you would argue, you could argue McChesney Martin too before him did just as much if not more um, in some ways. So, and then Bernanke was, you know, at a, at a, at a moment where, uh, federal, uh, reserve dominance, 
uh, was at its strongest, and we had yet to hit our tipping point of populism, and uh, and still had you know the Fed still had complete control of, of markets uh, and wasn't battling the populists or or the government that you know with fiscal policy. This is a very different situation. You know, neither one of those solutions, right, is going to solve the problem. Um, uh, the the problem is structural and just takes time, and it, it will. Um, you know, if he pulls a Volcker, we will have a massive recession. And the second that we have a massive recession, we will uh, ultimately, they will have to pivot. Though the political force will be such that they will have to pivot. While at the same time, the populace will pass more fiscal policy and the response will not be monetary. And that will lead to another kind of at once kind of stimulus, but again, fiscal inflationary push. That's what we've seen in this, this on the 60s and 70s. That's what we will see now. So that's not a winning solution. You get kind of get the worst of both worlds. You get a recession and then you get worse inflation. Um, so I would argue definitely not that being the solution, but 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 more monetary policy at this point, um, you know, ultimately is is going to is politically unpopular and, and against their mandate. It's actually like they can't do it. Um, because that inflation is not going away. And, and we've seen that. We've been talking about that for years. And it's obviously, you know, before transitory happened, after transitory happened. And now here we are again uh, after them, you know, talking about uh, kind of pausing uh, and that things seem to be resolving themselves. And guess what? Sticky CPI and, and employment numbers continue to come in. Yeah, no, absolutely. A another thing that I'd love to uh, just uh, hear your thoughts about, of course, uh, on the other series we do together, the Global Macro Series, we we uh, often debate not just sort of uh, U.S. issues. We, we we look at the whole world. We look at uh, many different things, not just economic uh, things, but what's basically going on from a geopolitical um, point of view. In the last few months since we last spoke, um, what are you taking away or what have, what have sort of caught your attention the most when you look at it from a geopolitical point of view and not so much a, you know, central bank type um, point of view? Yeah, so they're all related, right? Uh, it, you know, the... Uh, the reality is that populism is not a, a U.S.-centric thing. I, I was just in Iceland and Amsterdam. Uh, when we got to Iceland, there was a tourist workers strike, uh, you know, uh, while while we were traveling. Uh, and then we got to Amsterdam and there was a sanitation workers strike and then there was trash all over the streets. Um, I venture to say, if, you know, I moved on to the next country, there'd be another uh, strike. And and so that's that is the the zeitgeist and it, and it's a function why is that some weird coincidence that they we all are going through this at the same time uh, you know nobody really seems to talk about why why is populism here why is this the dominant and, and it's because inequality got too far um because of monetary policy and and uh you know now we're addressing it um and that's partially generational because again it's not inequality is not just rich versus poor the it's labor versus capital and labor are the younger generation, and so there's a there's a reason these cycles happen again and again. These are these are structural ways that, that things are tied. So so point is, it's a global phenomenon. When this happens, it actually exacerbates global issues. Um, not just uh, you know, uh, it's not a domestic thing. Is because protectionism is also uh, you know a part of a part of populism, right? Um, uh, you know, labor is domestic by definition. It's the people of a country, and Corporations are international um, for the most part. They they trade across. So globalization happens during times of 
fiscal, I uh, sorry, monetary expansion uh, historically and during fiscal pop times of populism, the opposite happens. And guess what? When you're more protectionist and the world is more protectionist, we're no longer cooperating or competing a lot more. Resource scarcity becomes a thing. Global war becomes a thing. And guess what? Here we are, right? So, so I, the way I see it is it's all interconnected. We're not, this is not a US versus Europe versus Asia thing. This is a global, um, you know, trend and, and it's not going away tomorrow. Um, you know, un unfortunately these things were built over 40 years and they'll be unwound over probably 20. Sure. No, I, I, I agree. Final thing I wanted to bring up with you before we talk a little bit about trend and then we go into the topics uh, was, uh, I remember last time we spoke and people should uh, just uh, be reminded this, you know, this is back in December where you essentially um, very accurately, I might add, said, well, keep an eye around mid-February OPEX um, and expect some kind of pullback. I don't think you put any percentage numbers on, but you thought there could be some weakness uh, after that. And, and of course, we've seen a 5% pullback or so uh, since that. Um, now we're getting closer to March uh, OPEX. We have... I think the buyback window uh, is closing in as earnings season will be with us soon. Is there anything um, that kind of surprised you or panned out slightly differently um, from from those things you were seeing already back in December to where we are today? Yeah, I, mean, I don't want to toot our horn or do whatever, but I do want to point out too, a year, over a year and a half ago, we, uh, in I think it was in September, we called the January market top at 4,800 within a two days as well. So these aren't, and people are like, how is that possible? Like the news, it's all about news. It's about the narrative follows price, right? Um, you know, the reason this, this happened is to a great extent because the market decline was happening and there was stress, so which drove kind of uh, some of the knock-on effects, right? Um, flows are dominant in these markets. We live in a time of broader liquidity uh, you know, it doesn't take much to support markets or also the removal of much liquidity to uh, allow a vacuum for things to occur. Um, uh, again, we're not going to call within days every turn. That's uh, nearly impossible. There's more to it than just the flows. Again, a nuclear bomb goes off in, you know, New York City or London that, that changes the, the picture. Um, the, the reality, though, is those things matter incredibly generally, but particularly in a time of illiquidity, which is the world we live in currently. So narrative has followed price. Um, I, uh, I think the Fed, and we were very vocal about this as we approached that Jan Fed period. The Fed, for a month, mind you, month and a half, was coming out and very vocally trying to talk the market down, and the market continued to rally. And that's, again, the power of flows. The market wasn't ready to kind of listen yet, right? But the Fed was out there and we kept saying they're selling calls. What does that mean? They're out here trying to, to put a cap on the market and take out the speculation. The market had rallied 20% off the bottom since late October. And that was helping to drive a stronger economy, that wealth effect, right? Uh, helping to drive hotter uh, CPI numbers um, in a lot of ways. And so, you know, the Fed was trying to push against that market wasn't listening. And then all of a sudden, kind of flows were removed and, uh, and and people started talking about it. Now there's this tale though, right, from the banking, kind of the, the bank run or whatever you want to, to refer to it as. And um, because of positioning now, the other, you know, in other products, particularly uh, on the yield curve, you've seen a historic 
move in kind of one year, two year yet treasury rates. Um, we had a 1.75% move in a matter of a week, two weeks. Um, and, and so that's not what the Fed wants either. The Fed wants the, the longer end of the yield curve up, right? Um, and to, so they don't stimulate the economy again. We're, we, uh, we've had a relatively resilient uh, property, you know, a, a construction uh, economy, and now you're massively lowering mortgage rates. Um, that's, not, that's not what the Fed wants. And so, um, again, there's this cyclical reaction that people have because that's and and algos have because it's been 40 years of the same uh thing it's all been a cyclical game within the context of a, a secular story that's been the same for 40 years and so algos right away under a kind of potential market liquidation risk crank down kind of uh, uh yields when there's a much bigger secular story that the fed is battling against here um and the fed still has to make to battle that. And that's why, you know, going into this Fed meeting just a couple of days ago, we were very vocal. Like, if you expect the Fed to be really, really kind of uh, stimulative and come in here, uh, you, you know, your market's going to be disappointed. And sure enough, you know, they came in and sold more calls, right? Um, that's what they have to do. And if we come keep getting hot CPIs, they'll have to do more. And that is the problem at the end of the day. This cyclical um, kind of removal of credit that we're so used to to, to remedying this, uh, you know, the, this inflationary impulse is no longer, you know, working. Um, and it's not going to work, not the way they want it to. And to the extent they blow up the economy, and at some point they can do drastic things, which they haven't quite gotten to yet. Um, you know, at that point, uh, you know, there will be other things that will make, that will bring inflation back as we referred to. Yeah, sure, sure. So we'll we'll definitely dive into some of these topics. I think maybe in in even more detail in in a few minutes. Um, but this was was this was great, Jim. Uh, good good way of uh, kicking things off. Um, just a quick quick word on trend for um, just as a little bit of an update. Um, oddly enough, it has been a pretty volatile week, but I think to a large extent, trend followers obviously were hit quite uh, hard. I would say, relatively speaking, um, last week. I think this week has been more, yeah, there might be a little bit of weakness overall when everything is um, sort of counted at the end of uh, today. But um, for the most part, I think a lot of positions actually were being offset or performance were being offset between positions. And of course, there's been a massive reduction in exposure uh, by CTAs. Um, so in terms of performance, I'm not expecting uh, nearly a, a bigger move, a, as big a move as, as we saw last week. Um, but still, it's going to be a fairly big down March, uh, down month for March if everything closes where we are. But, you know, putting things into proportion, people should just be aware that uh, whatever the losses are this month, there were probably similar gains uh, last year. And of course, the year as a whole was a very strong year. My own trend barometer right now is uh, at 41 as of last night. And so that's Neutral, but in the weaker end of neutral. Um, and uh, I am expecting uh, today, Friday, that CTA is probably having a down day. Despite that, uh, numbers uh, that I have seen last um, is as of Wednesday, uh, since we're recording a day early. I don't think they've posted the Thursday numbers. And the Beta 50 is down about 5% for the month, down about 4% for the year. Uh, Sockgen CTA index down about six and a quarter for the month, down 5% for the year. Uh, Sockgen trend down 7.6, uh, down 7.2. 
uh, for the year and the short-term traders index down 1.8 for the month and down 0.2. But as I said, there will be further weakness in the numbers uh, once we finish the week as a whole. Uh, equities still doing fine for the year, up 3.6 in, S- uh, in the MSCI world and about 3% for the S&P, excluding today. And of course, bonds are having a good month, uh, up nearly 3% for the world company bonds. Now, you send me a list of, um, or Chris sent me a list of topics that uh, we should talk about. I heard you touch on some of the things, but I will still put things to you and then you can decide how much more you want to dive into it. But but one of the things you and I don't speak so much about really, I mean, because volatility is obviously equity related, but it seems like most of the volatility we've seen lately has been in the yield curve. It's been in the fixed income markets. Uh, so I was kind of wondering if you wanted to expand your uh, your strategy a bit to include some of that, because, uh, you know, it's a pretty interesting opportunity set. Not sure you're going to do that, but... As you rightly pointed out, there are some historic moves uh, happening right now. Dive into this a little bit more, maybe from a a, a perspective of how that might uh, sort of change your view on your own strategy, your own field in terms of um, equities as well uh, when these things happen or whatever direction you want to go. But but I think it's it's an important area to to talk about because a lot of people you know, let alone have never experienced, um, you know, yields going up like we saw last year. I mean, most investors today have never seen this. So that was pretty historic last year. Now we're getting into short, I mean, one, two, three day moves that are, you know, where we have to go back to the early 80s to see something similar. So so we can't just say, oh, this is business as usual. It's really business unusual at the moment. So how, and, and even in the vol space, I imagine, because- Perhaps there wasn't much, uh, you know, data to analyze back from the eighties. Um, so how do, how do you make sense of all of these, quote unquote? And I hate to use the word unprecedented moves that's taking place. Yeah. So we've done some analysis. Uh, you and I have talked about it a bit um, about uh, different asset classes other than equities and and vol and how they perform during different environments. Um, and one of the things we we highlighted um, in that is that uh, uh, you know, and, and first, uh, you know, last year at first, some vol really exploded as as we you know, and, and the implied vols exploded with them, and others did not. Um, and and the question was was at that point when we were looking several months ago, um, which ones are you know, if we believe this inflationary environment to be the case, which ones should remain elevated and and which ones shouldn't, and one of the ones that has had exploded last year already, um, but that had kind of pulled back was uh, interest rate fall, right? And we were very clear that that will remain the case. That is not uh, an anomaly that don't expect that to come back to where it was. Um, same with, uh, you know, uh, you know, FX fall. And those two things are obviously very connected, right? And, and how are they connected? Because interest rates are cross you know, cross-national, um, you know, they affect flows uh, from from country to country. The Federal Reserve is ultimately kind of battling kind of money supply here and abroad uh, to deal with inflation. Um, and so FX uh, and, and uh, interest rate of all both went quite a bit higher, uh, were fairly priced uh, in, in our view, kind of came down from that after a period of placidity. That, that was an environment, you know, an opportunity to buy in the last couple of months. And 
not a surprise we've seen kind of another spike. Um, you know, it's going to come in uh, waves. Uh, again, not a surprise. The last time we saw these types of moves were the late, late early 80s. That was the end of the last kind of inflationary cycle uh, throughout the you know, 68 to 82 period, uh, that kind of inflationary period. Um, we saw a lot of, uh, just go look at a chart, uh, interest rate uh, volatility tied to inflation and, and the Fed and three recessions, right, over that period. So um, very, very um, volatile time. Um, the one that hasn't hadn't until more recently participated was gold. We were very vocal uh, when we talked. You probably remember that gold was, uh, in terms of vol uh, and in terms of upside potential, was significantly undervalued. Soon after that, we saw a massive run in gold, and gold vol has also begun to participate a bit more. So that was an opportunity. It's still cheap, in my opinion. But again, that ties in to this FX and interest rate kind of world. And that part is going to continue to be um, a point of focus for the markets and volatility. And 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 I uh, am I remembering correctly that you back then said in particular long dated gold vol was that yeah long dated gold calls which again were pretty much the perfect trade uh, at that moment right before gold took off because vol also uh, increased into that rally which is not necessarily what normally happens um, but uh, but the, that equity vol as you mentioned has been very weak uh, recently and we we broadly think that that is uh, a, a a broader trend. Uh, in these periods, uh, because nominally markets, if you think about 682, 82, went nowhere, right? So they had a lot of de big decline, like a decent amount of declines and rallies, um, but particularly long dated vol. I mean, you went nowhere for 14 years. That's that's a pretty big, uh, you know, opportunity. Whereas there's usually a trend, right, in equity markets that's particularly strong to the upside, and that long term can can make for, um, you know, bigger upside volatility. Um, in markets. The, the last thing I'll say, the one thing we highlighted as the opposite of gold, which was the vol was overdub, was oil. And sure enough, oil's kind of been dead, right? There hasn't been nearly as much, um, especially on the downside, right? I mean, yes, we got some declines, but they're very controlled. And that speaks to this resource scarcity reality that we live in, where that resource is ultimately something that has an underpinning you know, demand that's going to continue to be in a, in a demand push economy where fiscal is feeding demand. And uh, and now that China's come back online, there's a natural kind of underpinning there as well. Um, so longer term, the vol there is likely to be, um, you know, more subdued than the jump in vol that we saw early in the cycle. And that was also an opportunity. So we do look at the cross, the not just equity vol, we're very cognizant of these other complexes and opportunities and we're actually launching a macro vol um, product this next quarter so okay yeah because you know the, the, just when i hear you talk i mean there's there's so many things actually that uh you know kind of going a little bit off script in terms of the topics that we had um uh, first of all just as a comment on the oil thing i think that uh, a, a lot of people probably maybe including myself is a little bit surprised that you know where the oil price is today compared with all the 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 uh, forecast people were coming with um you know in last year of course but also in, in recent months and all of that that's one thing but but i had a couple of questions one is and 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 maybe you know maybe you don't that's okay but one is we we hear a lot about i mean vol became very popular a few years ago in in my world people were looking at vol kind of almost in competition with trend following as kind of a crisis 
strategy, I don't want to use alpha, but just as a place to have some exposure, should we get a crisis, et cetera, et cetera. The thing is, I'm not so sure that the crisis that people imagined is turning up the way they imagined it would turn up. I mean, for example, we're obviously talking just now about the interest rate. So I'm curious about, is vol in the fixed income space, of course we have the move index, right? But is vol in the, fi- uh, in the fixed income space actually something that where there are a lot of strategies that people can invest in at all. I'm, I'm not personally familiar with any, but I know, of course, there are a number of different vol strategies in the equity space, but 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 what does what does it look like if you wanted to to have exposure to uh, um, you know yield vol and stuff like that? it's It's a very liquid market. Uh, it is uh, actively traded. Uh, there's a lot of hedging that goes on, as you might imagine in interest rate space, a lot of institution money. It tends to be uh, much more kind of uh, heavy, like kind of sticks to a certain place because there's big institutional flows uh, and then breaks all at once. Um, it, it's, it's kind of disjointed as a, as a function of that. But uh, there, are, there are big, it was a, a, a wasteland, I will be clear, for when interest rates were pinned to zero uh, for a long time. Uh, but I highlighted in the derivative several years ago that like the biggest opportunity going into the inflation cycle was interest rate mall. Um, and so it is it is a, a place where more and more people are are trying to play. It is a fairly liquid world that you can play in, but with big, big institutional players where um, where you're sometimes kind of you're, you're getting pushed around a bit. But for a secular for secular trades, it's an Im- immense opportunity and there are str- plenty of strategies. You know, your dollar options are very liquid in particular, um, but yes, treasury, uh, yeah, I could go on and on, and obviously you can play that for CFS. Yeah, but not so many not so many hedge funds doing it, right? I mean, or... I mean, more and more, right? Uh, okay, there, more and more, yeah. There, there's Fair a enough. lot yeah. that got, uh, you know, it, because it's a very positioning-heavy market, there are a lot of people who got stuck on the wrong side of the trade that, that had some problems. And you, we heard about that like six months, nine months ago, you know, there were a bunch of deaths and entities that got kind of completely wiped out um, on some of those first moves. People have readjusted and uh, vol is readjusted uh, to an extent and, and those things happen. Uh, but but no, there's there's great opportunities there. Again, uh, something that, that I think uh, is a place that particularly the next decade uh, is a secular opportunity. Yeah. The other thing, and I'm sure you've been asked this question before, but I think if anyone can, it's you. And that is make a little bit sense of the fact, I'm going, I don't know how to explain it well, but I think a lot of investors, as I said before, came to Vol a few years ago, expecting that this would be a good place to hide uh, hide out um, in in a in a in a situation where things were where we were maybe maybe people felt that we were probably moving more towards sort of crisis uh, periods, um, not knowing necessarily we would have a a pandemic, not knowing that we, uh, we that it would be followed up by by other challenges, et cetera, et cetera. And again, this is probably more you talking about the landscape of vol funds, not necessarily what you're doing. I think you've probably done much better than most other people, but but just generally speaking, if you were to explain to, and I know also that you have funds that have been long, that are long vol, but there are other relative value funds, et cetera. So maybe you need to distinguish a little bit, but I think a lot of people are sitting back uh, with this difficult situation of explaining how can it be 
that we are in a in a in a situation where we have historically ch- changes in interest rates. We have a war. We have deglobalization. We have one crisis after the other, and yet my volatility fund is losing money. Can you help them make sense of that? Yeah, it's all about positioning. One of our three funds is called Dealer Flow. It's about watching dealer positioning, right? And training accordingly. It is the biggest component. Everybody wants to paint a a broader narrative about uh, kind of uh, some macro thing uh, and why it pushed a day-to-day move or week-to-week move or a month-to-month move. For the most part, uh, macro affects things you know, over the longer run, much like fundamentals, the day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, even annual moves, right, are a function of positioning. Again, you and I have talked about this as it relates to kind of a first move versus second move phenomenon. Uh, the reality that that often people are prepared for the first move, especially with the Fed, which telegraphed kind of they were going to have to raise rates. Um, you know, there was a record amount of hedging going on, particularly in the S&P 500 at the top in the market skew is at kind of record levels. And, and again, we've talked about this at, at, at length, but when the market liquidated, that meant all those hedges had to be monetized. And if you were levered long equities and long vol as your, your tail protection against it, um, you not only lost on your equities, but you lost on your vol. And then there were, once the, the losses started coming in on the vol, is a liquidation, right? Because you're losing on both sides of the trade. Funds are getting liquidated. They were doing both. There's a, a forced selling component. And skew flattened to essentially a historically flat skew. And that's a function of just people having to liquidate. But a lot of that liquidation has happened and and uh, it takes time for it to happen. That pain essentially forces positioning out and pain and gain the other way. If people are making money doing something, they do more of it. And if they're losing money, they stop doing it. And it's that simple. People um, crowd into trades and crowd out of trades. Uh, People ask me, when does the dealer positioning fund do well? When does a strategy like that do well? Well, a strategy like that does well once you've been in a trend of some kind. It doesn't mean trend up or trend down. Some type of environment that's been sticky because that means people are making money doing certain things and they're losing money doing that exact opposite thing. And people crowd into trades and that makes dealer positioning bigger. And that means at some point, you know, the effects of that become bigger and bigger on supply and demand imbalances. So you, t- you said oil, right? You're, we were, a lot of people are surprised that oil didn't work. Guess what? You know, we were, everybody's been talking about how, you know, the secular opportunity in oil. Well, you know, that's going to make it difficult. Um, in the short term. It doesn't mean the macro trend is not going to play out. It means it's going to be hard. And it's always hard, right? If it looks like an easy trade and everybody's doing it, it's not going to work. And as a trader, if you don't know that, like you're not in business anymore because that is the, uh, you know, everybody forgets about the number one most important thing about, you know, an asset. It's supply and demand, right? Everybody talks about the narrative and how it might be affecting supply and demand or how it should affect supply and demand, but very few people go look at actual supply and demand. You know, positioning is literally like a direct effect to supply and demand, and very few people pay enough attention to that. It's critical. So why did it play out this way? Because we're hedged. And why will we eventually get a tail event much like we have in all of the other major tail events I've been through, it will be because people are not no longer hedged because they gave up on vol, which is happening 
Uh, it's a function of time and losses involved. It's a function of price and, and price frustrating vol traders, which all are happening. It's a function of people saying, hey, I bought this. Vol never works, you know, in a volatile time. I bought this for volatile time. And guess what? It didn't work. I'm done with it. And that's what happened. And that's what's happening. That, that sounds very familiar to a strategy I know well, um, I have to say. But let me let me put it in my own sort of simplistic, uh, non-vol expert terms. Um, is it fair to say that in the last, say, whatever period, 18, 24 months, I don't know exactly how long, you know, we, we could observe that, that, say, and again, for simplicity, say the VIX didn't quite react the way it normally would react. So if equities were down, the VIX wouldn't really go up as much and so on and so forth. But is it fair to say that you feel now that maybe a lot of this has been flushed out of the system that we may expect uh, that some of these reaction patterns that we've seen before may come back? Is that how you... Is that how to do Let's stick with May. It's a function of time. It always takes longer than you expect. I've said this before. Knowledge is vol dampening. If people are aware of things, they are broadly hedged for it. And that means it's less likely to happen. That's why we were talking about the housing market crisis, right? Uh, you know, in the U.S. in 2005 and 2006, and it didn't happen until 2008. On a smaller timescale, we knew about COVID in late December, early January. Uh, you know, the decline didn't happen until mid-February. Kept getting new highs for like two months. Um, people forget that. People think like we learned about COVID and the market declined thirty percent. No, we learned about COVID and the market rallied. You know, seven percent and then it dropped thirty percent. Right? Um, positioning is critical. Uh, if I sit out here and tell everybody, much like I did about well, February fifteenth. To be prepared, this is a bad flows window. You don't get a 15% decline. You get a 5% decline, right? No. And, so let and me rephrase my question a little here. Sorry to interrupt here, but let me rephrase my question a little bit because I'm I'm really trying to um, make this sort of um, uh, easy to understand. Um, now, we know from COVID, March 2020, a lot of vol funds back then, uh, obviously with a long bias, made a killing that month and, and they've sort of spending most of the time since then giving that back or more. And you could say that, well, okay, maybe some people were a little bit uh, quicker to realize that this could be a major problem, but you could generally say that going into 2020, everything was fine. There's no signs of deglobalization. Interest rates were under control. Central banks were forceful. Um, and then this came kind of out of the blue, you know, a pandemic. So in, in that sense, you could say you had this massive reaction. Um, so it was the unexpected. But now, let me put it this way. I think the narrative in media, certainly including our little podcast here, we have been talking about that the world is changing, that we have a regime change, everything is much more uncertain, we have deglobalization, we have all of these risks out there. So in an odd way, does that mean that it kind of makes it harder for these vol strategies, as certainly from a long vol point of view, to actually work because everyone is on alert. Everybody's on a, uncertain. So they're trying to kind of be prepared and hedged and all of that. Is that a simple, Is that can that simple analogy be used for anything? Yeah, I think, I think broadly, if people are prepared, it's less likely to happen. Um, the question is, are people still 
prepared or, or people becoming a bit more complacent um, and, and be, or, or, you know, not willing to hedge with vol. Uh, what we've seen is, you know, markets at the top in Feb, uh, you know, 2022 were, uh, you know, the local recent top uh, were, uh, were largely over leveraged to beta and hedging it with vol. And that was because everybody had experienced Feb, March, 2020, not that long ago, very front and center in people's minds and said, well, this is the answer to how I kind of take, you know, you don't want to get, get rid of your, your, uh, your beta. And, and that was a losing proposition. Now, instead of being, I don't know, 120%, 1.2 beta equities and point negative 0.4 beta vol, right. Uh, hoping to get taken out of the tail, right. That's a very different distribution. Now people are 0.8 beta equities, right. It's the same beta and their minds, but a very, very different distribution of outcomes. The 0.8 beta means you lose 0.8 all the way down. Uh, whereas the other scenario, you, you know, you, you get, you know, after maybe a, a five, 10% decline, you get taken out of your equity exposure. And so, so just a very different distribution of outcomes. And that's where we are now. We are not at late 2017 type vol positioning where the whole world is short and there's a massive tail. But we're not there yet. There's a lot of short vol funds that are out there marketing their their returns of the last year and a half into a declining market as a diversifier and non-correlated strategy. You know, they did very well into a market decline. Short vol was the trade. And it did well, you know, if you look back in recent history, obviously, as well, because the markets haven't had a decline. It looks pretty appealing when you only look back 10 years or you don't really, you know, or, or you know, this several couple of years, I guess, uh, you know, there, there's, there's, um, so people crowd in to these trades and, and, uh, it's moral hazard and, uh, it's, it's more, you make money in those, the more assets there are, the more people chase them and the opposite is true for long fall. So that's where we are, uh, despite the macro realities of the world. And so people will begin to, at some point say, well, maybe, maybe the macro environment's not as bad as I thought. Look, and there's a reflexive effect to the realized vol. Markets have been very low vol realized as well. So that's, in my opinion, I'm seeing underneath the hood that that positioning has changed and it is changing. It's a, it doesn't change from one to zero. It's a gradient, right? And, and it's relative and, and at, just like some of these other things, where's that breaking point? You know, it's going to come eventually, but it does it take six months. Does it take a year? Does it take two years? Generally it's on the longer end of these things because in the more, especially top of mind kind of vol is, uh, people are willing to kind of wait out the pain and, and are more patient. Um, so, um, there has been a big move, uh, and people haven't wanted to abandon there's, it's, it's a little bit more nuanced too. People haven't wanted to abandon all their hedges, but the Vega hasn't been working. The implied vol has been awful, right? So people have crowded into a new type of vol trade because they don't want to abandon all their hedges, which is zero DTE kind of gamma because realized vol has been okay. Right. Um, there's problems to that positioning, just like, you know, it, people broadly think that, that, oh, well, 15 years, we haven't really had other than a week or two, a implied vol move without a realized move. So the realized move, uh, you know, is, is a much smarter way to go. Um, well, I'm here to tell you that that happens as well. And just like oil going to negative 30 because of positioning, strange things can happen. And that's a very unbalanced positioning and is having structural effects, which is important to the oncoming prediction. So I would 
point people to that, to look at that and think, well, how are things going to evolve differently than they have in the past? And, um, you know, we've been seeing a much more interesting implied vol response lately. Um, and, uh, I think we're even, you know, with the, the, the macro, you know, dealing with this by the fed and whatnot, that we've seen that response continue to happen. And that's, that's interesting. I'll just highlight that as one of a couple of major positionings that have changed, particularly in the vol market that, that maybe give us a clue about how, how this will evolve in the, the coming months. In in terms of other clues, uh, Jim, I'm I'm curious about this. We we talked before. I talked before about uh, you know the the uh, pandemic as being kind of a black swan. People didn't expect that. I think there's another thing that could turn out to be a black swan, and maybe we've just seen a little tiny um, uh, introduction to what that looks like, and that's loss of confidence. I think one of the things that um, we have enjoyed and investors have enjoyed is an incredible amount of confidence in what central banks have been doing, uh, under control, et cetera, et cetera. A number of years ago, I started uh, talking about that one of the things that I worry about the most is the time when we get to a point where people lose confidence in what we've been doing. We've been dealing with massive amount of debt by adding a further amount of debt and so on and so forth. Um, I think what happened in these banks and with the speed of, of what it happened uh, or how it happened is an indication of how things can change dramatically when markets lose confidence. So I don't know if you agree with this, that this could be an issue, but if you do, I'd love for you to talk about, but also is there a way to detect <laughs> loss of confidence in the markets that you follow a little bit ahead of time, maybe compared to um, the markets most people follow. Yeah, I think in particular, um, confidence in the Fed, right, is yeah, um, or central banks in general. Central banks I mean, in general, yeah. correct, is um, you know there there is a there is a broad belief because the last forty years of, that the Fed can control the system and and uh, and, and the economy. And as we mentioned, there's there's a secular component. That they're likely not to be able to. The, the Fed, at some point, in my opinion, is going to lose control of the long end of the curve. Um, I think that's going to be increasingly tied to, you know, higher vol in interest rate interest rates is part of the mechanism that gets us there. As positioning becomes shorter and shorter, you know, vol um, in those those products because it's just too expensive. The that opens up the window for for more extreme outcomes. Just like we saw a one point seven five percent move in the one one year, uh, you know, fall, you can see that happen the opposite. Now, now imagine if instead of dropping from five point four to three point six five or whatever it was, now that the opposite ha- had happened, that is a, a terrifying thing for the Fed to not be able, especially in the face of maybe them trying to control that. Um, so. Yes, I think th- I agree with you. The, the The second leg down, I think, will be accompanied by a loss of confidence that the Fed can resolve a stagflationary environment, uh, and and that's the truth that they can't. Um, and if uh, if that becomes embedded, and importantly, it's not just that. I want to be clear: we should talk about the narratives of why things should happen. But if positioning, which I was just talking about, gets to a place where, um, you know. Broadly, there's there's less liquidity and more risk to that that side. 
um, in particular is is one you need to be watchful for that. I think that's coming. I think it's going to happen sometime in the next year or so. Um, and I think that is the, the major risk. Um, it's likely after, ironically, after a, a recession or into a recession that it's likely to happen because that's when positioning is likely to turn and the, the potential energy of, of, of that happening is, is higher, in my opinion. And, and is the clue for something like that? I mean, obviously, it would be major. It would be nothing that I think anyone... I mean, there may be a few people who are old enough who have actually gone through a period like that, but I can't really think of a period where I mean, maybe maybe in the 60s and the 70s people felt that the central banks had lost control, maybe so early 80s before Volcker. But but very few investors will have gone through a period like that. And And is, in your opinion, the way to spot something like that beginning to happen just more vol in long-dated bonds? Yeah, two things. One... Uh, it's it's a function of vol being loosened, right? So there's this greater risk of this happening. We're seeing that. Um, two, um, positioning directionally. Um, you know, a lot of people are trying to hedge for an inflationary response uh, and being frustrated. That's part of why you get kind of these moves. I think when we start hearing a narrative, and, and this positioning will reflect that narrative of, hey, Maybe this is an inflationary environment. Hey, have we entered a deflationary environment? When that becomes central into a coming recession, um, and uh, you know the pain that that's what I would be very, very, very uh, begin to be very aggressive in the long end of the curve. Because again, you have to, have, if you believe in that secular narrative, you know there were three recessions, uh, in sixty-eight to eighty-two, uh, and. They each were accompanied by, especially early on before it took hold, a belief that, okay, we're done with inflation. Um, and you know, yields came down long into the curve. It took a while for the long, uh, you know, the long-term inflation expectations really to break out. And that really took some time uh, and uh, a couple of recessions where, hey, it kept going higher despite the cyclical responses. And I think that's what's going to happen. Uh, and I think particularly into oncoming recession, when everybody's like, look, see the inflation, see we've we've healed inflation, uh, you know, and, and it's as it's a function of a, a cyclical response and not that secular trend, um, I think that's going to be when positioning gets off sides and ultimately allows for a move there that that's going to be very counterintuitive. I think the key is it's got to be counterintuitive. Um, the the moves that work in ball are almost always, you know, in some way come at a counterintuitive moment or when people are have given up hope or, you know, that that's by definition what volatility is. If people are prepared for it, it's not generally a volatile event. You know, today you and I are allowing ourselves to really speculate and come with all sorts of uh, ideas of what could happen. Uh, one thing that is pretty sure to happen in the next 18 months, I, I, I imagine, is we're going to have a U.S. election. In your world, how does a period leading up to an election, how how does that play out, if at all? I mean, how how do you think about or do you think about that already? I absolutely do. And actually, it's top of mind for us because other people aren't talking. And I'm so glad you brought it up. It's the thing that is uh, going to be the next narrative um, and the next uh, important, uh, not just narrative, but reality. So the critical piece of that is that fiscal policy is front and center. So to the extent that it's taken a pause uh, 
The absolute worst thing that could happen for inflation, in my opinion, is a, re a big recession here before the election. And then you're just going to get a fiscal wave, right? Um, and ironically, last to our narrative that we're talking about here, that would also be the moment when people were like talking about, uh, you know, a deflation and that CPI has been, you know, fixed, uh, you know. So um, I, it's very front and center uh, to how I'm thinking about this. Uh, we'll see. Timing is important. I think regardless of whether we get that big or big enough recession to to serve as the the crisis excuse for the the greater fiscal, um, we're going to get some either way. So I feel pretty good about the broad trend there, the secular trend. I think it's politically, uh, you know, the generation, the millennial generation on down, you know, is is if you look at Biden's numbers, nobody would have thought he'd be where he is now, right? A year ago, especially into a, a market that's broadly down and that, you know, uh, there's, it's not about the market as much as it's been the last 40 years. It's, it's about payments and that people on the bottom are actually, you know, more and more able to afford things and relative to others feel like they can. Um, uh, it's about, uh, policy, whether it's like forgiveness of, uh, or attempts to forgive loans or, uh, housing payments or, you know, you go on and on, um, you know, the fiscal response. So expect, uh, price controls if we have inflation, which is fiscal. And if inflation's coming down, just expect outright kind of support for the economy, but heading to kind of, um, the bottom of the, the distribution. And, um, I think that that's going to be a very important uh, component of where we're heading, you know, whether it's Biden that gets elected or, uh, you know, Trump or, you know, DeSantis or whoever you're looking at, um, it's all populist at this point. Um, and, and you better believe there's more protectionism, more onshoring, more, um, you know, more fiscal response, uh, whether it's healthcare, education, um, you know, defense, like all of it's going to be, uh, increasing here going forward in my, in my view. And again, the worst economy does the more that we're going to get, uh, in the short term. Uh, so, so buckle up. There's one thing, and I don't know if you have thought about this, but there's something I overheard in in another conversation. I actually thought, hmm, haven't really thought about that myself. Um, and it's a topic we haven't touched upon, even though I think actually is pretty important, and that's the U.S. debt ceiling. And uh, someone was just um, reminding everyone that actually what happens is that as long as there is no agreement, they can operate with this emergency policy which means that Janet Yellen doesn't have to fill up the coffers of the Treasury. But as soon as they agree, they have to issue a bucket load of bonds to fill up the Treasury account or whatever it's called. Is this a deadline, even though it's a few months away, uh, but these negotiations, I don't follow it closely, I have no idea uh, where, where it is, but it usually gets resolved like in the you know one minute before deadline. Um, but is this something you also pay attention to? Yeah, very much. Uh, no, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, you know, this is likely to become a, uh, again, a a period people wring their hands over uh, because, again, election season is coming and posturing and everybody grandstanding is is part of that, right? There, people are going to try and, uh, you know, have their mountain to, to build their brand on, right? Um, and so there's going to be a, a real battle here over it. That said, um, nobody... It's not politically good for anybody who's an incumbent, right, to have this 
Uh, it's all about incentives, right? It's always about incentives. And so now it's not in their best interest to not figure it out. So they will figure it out. They will have to. Um, again, uh, otherwise, the figures start getting pointed and none of them win. Um, so that's what will happen. So expect as you as tends to happen, some volatility going into that uh, and for it to kind of be the last second uh, and there to be a res resolution. That said, to your point, um, the TRG or the, the Treasury's kind of, uh, you know, funding of um, of things until the, the emergency funding has actually been stimulative um, underneath the hood. It's been kind of reversing a lot of the effects of QT um, uh, to the market um, because there's just not a supply of, you know, like the, there's of treasuries right on the market. Um, and to your point, when that happens, supply and demand, which is the ultimate most important effect, does get out of whack. And that will be a period, in my opinion, where we're also likely to start seeing some more interesting potential supply demand imbalances on the yield side. Um, so yes, something to watch, something that uh, there's a lot of talk about. So, you know, the more talk you hear about it, you got to be careful. But but uh, to, to your point, um, you know, it's about supply and demand in, you know, at the end of the day where these things are getting priced. And to the extent there hasn't been enough upside pressure in yields, some of that is just we've had kind of kind of secret QE behind the you know uh, curtain that's been uh, you know helping out, um, and that's likely again to to dissipate and be one of the components that that could really um, lead to a greater imbalance and, and push things the other way. I mean, if I was going to sum up what you're saying, and uh, with the very big chance of me getting it wrong, it it sounds like you you can actually think kind of if we just stick with equities that. Uh, yeah, we may get some counter-trend rallies along the way, but overall, um, the trend is probably in the bigger picture um, heading south. Is Would that be fair? Don't fight the Fed. <laughs> that was when, when markets were going up and the Fed was selling puts, you know, the Fed put was in place. Uh, you know, that was that was the answer on a secular basis. Yes, you had counter-trend drops, you know, and opportunities to buy, et cetera. But now the opposite is true. Um, to a large extent, and again, just don't don't ignore you know, don't ignore when you know the tide is going out, uh, and and uh, and even if cyclically we get a, a little blip the other way, uh, that doesn't mean uh, you know we're not in the same cyclical world. We're not still playing the same up and down within a very controlled Fed dominant uh, environment. There's a, a different uh, entity in town which changes everything, which is the government uh, and fiscal policy. Jim, um, anything as we wrap up? I mean, anything that we forgot to talk about? Um, anything you want to bring up before we we wrap up? Uh, this has been super fun and useful and extremely insightful. So really appreciate your time today. Yeah, I've missed our conversations. These are always fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, so two major kind of uh, things going on in positioning. I already referenced one of them in passing, which was Gamma versus Vega. People broadly aren't exposed to implied vol anymore. Um, they are trying to hedge it with more realized vol. 45% of options volume is now zero days to expiration. Um, again, it's everywhere people are talking about. It. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but I think that component um, is likely to mean, in my opinion, that that gamma stops working as well, which is kind of what we're seeing. We're getting a lot of just back and forth, but not, but that the vega starts creeping higher. And I do think that's uh, something we're broadly seeing. Uh, I think there's a greater opportunity uh, in SKU. SKU's gone significantly higher, and 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 tail, um, 
again, I, I think by the time the event happens, uh, hedging will have uh, costs will have gone up where you need it. Um, in uh, in a broader, longer kind of call it a, in a, a one year plus type prices. Think of an 08 or a 2000, 2001, uh, long-term vol can make some crazy moves that are not necessarily rational. Um, uh, at the end of 08, uh, uh, in early 09, sorry, 10-year uh, vol traded 60, 10-year variance swap traded 60. Uh, you know, the long-term average is 17 and a half. Uh, that makes no sense. It's irrational, but it happened because people were short it and it went higher and they had to buy it back. Equally as, uh, it, you know, insane is uh, in 2007, it was trading 15, right? Like, uh, it's a lot about positioning at the end of the day. And that lack of positioning in Vega, I think, is particularly important into what's a broadly secularly dangerous period. It won't happen right away, but the opportunity set's growing there. Gamma uh, is likely because that's where people are uh, kind of positioned, a little likely to frustrate uh, hedgers that are doing just realized losses. That's one. Two, the other one we didn't talk about yet, which I think is very important. This move uh, in duration uh, versus like growth versus value, Russell versus NASDAQ. We've seen some really incredible moves the last couple of weeks. We broadly call that. Why? Because uh, especially going into March op OPEX is when it started to accelerate because there was a massive amount of, of put hedging, both in retail and speculative uh, you know, hedges in the NASDAQ because that's what's worked. People crowded into that because uh, it was working. Um, short call, long put there. Uh, whereas nowhere else has had the hedges and people have started to abandon it. I guess what? You know, into the, the decline, you've actually seen massive NASDAQ strength, which is counterintuitive uh, to, to a lot of people. And you all, you all of a sudden see value kind of uh, really have problems, particularly small cap value. It's a function of positioning. That positioning is still strong. People are still kind of caught in that trade um, and until that resolves itself um, that that could continue. Those two things are also connected in the sense that when volatility does tend to increase, you tend to get correlation going to one across assets or more. Uh, and some of the assets that were under hedged, right, um, tend to, despite kind of maybe safety or lower beta can sometimes be much more dangerous. Um, and I think, uh, you know, into the next decline, if the one occurs here, uh, if, if it is a volatile decline with Vega going, you know, a more applied vol focused decline, I think is continue, is, is likely to continue to see, um, again, maybe not the NASDAQ as much as, as, uh, some of these other kind of oil names and these places where people have been hiding, uh, counterintuitively be just as painful, um, if not more. Um, and so I think that's something to watch. I've been talking about that for a couple of months. So we're starting to see that happening. That's a function of positioning that's, that's taken kind of a year to reverse to, to these positions. And now I think it's going to be, you're going to be forcing people out of those, those positions going forward. Cool. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. This has been amazing. Luckily, you and I are recording uh, another Global Macro episode next week. So that's going to be fun. So it won't be long before people can listen to you. But of course, if you uh, do enjoy these episodes, um, then why don't you head over and leave a rating and review? It only takes five minutes and it's easy to do. And if you don't know how to leave a rating and review, then you can go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash review and you have all the 
instructions. I hope that's not too much to ask. Um, and um, questions, of course, uh, next week, uh, you can send them in because uh, we're going to have Andrew Bear back. Uh, so I'm sure we're going to be tackling some trend following and CTA replication uh, topics with him and I'm sure some other things. But if you have a burning question, send it to info at toptradersonplugged.com. That's it for today from Jem and me. Thanks ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. And as usual, until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.